Our study has brought us to Malachi 2.17, into chapter 3, 3 verse 6, 2.17 to 3.6. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or... Where is the God of justice? Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. And he will sit as a smelter and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, so that they may present to the Lord offerings in righteousness. Then, The offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment, and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against those who swear falsely and against those who oppress the wage earner in his wages, the widow and the orphan and those who turn aside the alien, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Amen. The Lord has been wearied, it says in chapter 2, verse 17. What's happening? We have the people with their typical I didn't know that. I don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about, Lord? The Lord makes an accusation against them, and they pretend to be ignorant about it. And after they pretend to be ignorant, in verse 17, the Lord answers them. He answers them with their own words. He knows what they're saying. And what is it that they have done? They have wearied the Lord with their words. They have tired him out. They have worn him out. This is figuratively speaking, because God does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable, as the prophet Isaiah says. So that's not the matter if he is really and truly that. He's speaking of it in terms of him being angry and upset and irritated at what they're saying. That's how he's expressing his anger. You have wearied the Lord with your words. And their objection. Yet you say, how have we wearied him? Oh no, there's nothing that we're doing wrong. We're good people. We are the people of the Lord. We don't have any sin. We would never challenge God. We would never bother him. We would never make him angry. We would never irritate him. No, no, we would never do that. But God says they have done that. How so? 17, in that you say, there he's quoting them. He says, you say, yet you say, in that you say, 
This should remind us that God knows everything we say. He knows everything we say, everything we think, everything we see, everything we do. He knows it all. And we will not escape. And what is it that they say? Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They accuse God of loving evildoers. They accuse God of doing good to evildoers. They accuse God of blessing evildoers, and God delights in evildoers. They accuse him of that. And they say, where is the God of justice? They accuse God of loving and doing good to evildoers because the God of justice has not punished them. The God of justice has not condemned them. The God of justice has not brought about the day of judgment. Well, this shows a fundamental misunderstanding. This fundamental misunderstanding is answered in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. They do not understand that God gives people time to repent and to be prepared for the coming of Christ. They refuse to understand that everything is in preparation for the coming of Christ or for the ministry of Christ. They are not looking at the world, world events, and the way the evildoers are prospering in light of the day of judgment. They have to understand it in light of the day of judgment and the comings of Christ, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. If they understand world events, human events, according to these two comings, then everything will make sense. And then their false accusations, their slander and blasphemy against God, everyone who does good is, 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 does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. They will not accuse God of loving evil doers. That's a false accusation and blasphemy against God. That God puts up with evil, he tolerates evil for a while, and it may be described as God becoming weary or sorry or regretful. The Bible teaches it in that way in order to teach us that there is a limit to what God does or a limit to the way he handles things on the earth. There will be a time when he will hold us all accountable. This we find in the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, in the days of Noah and the flood. It says this about the Lord. Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Genesis 6, 5, and 6. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. It says he was sorry and grieved. Sorry and grieved. But this is to express God's hatred, his disdain, of what he sees, and that he is about to act to punish them. That's the reason it's said in this way, that he has had enough of it and it bothers him, so it's bothering him enough that he is now about to act on it. And how is he going to act in this 
context? A worldwide flood to destroy every man and animal except those on the ark. Only eight men left on the ark and some animals, but all the rest destroyed. Now, as for the fact that God doesn't literally become weary, Isaiah the prophet tells us that. Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 27. Isaiah 40, 27, 27 to 31. Why do you say, O Jacob, and assert, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and the justice due me escapes the notice of my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary and to him who lacks might, he increases power. Though youths grow weary and tired and vigorous young men stumble badly, yet those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. It's not that God literally becomes weary or tired. In fact, he has all the power and the strength in the world, almighty power and understanding that is inscrutable. That is, we cannot imagine how much understanding or wisdom God has. And he has it so much that he's able to help us to be reinvigorated, to be strengthened so that we are able to run and not grow weary in the faith. Then, as for this matter of them saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Man, from the very beginning to the end of the Bible and throughout human history, man will always find a way to excuse their sins. They'll say, well, God delights in evildoers, so let's all do evil. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. So let's just do it, because that's the way God has made the world. He made the world for us to enjoy the world, to do evil in the world. Romans 3. Romans 3. 3, verse 8. 3, 8 of Romans. And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, let us do evil that good may come. Their condemnation is just. What's happening here? There are people in the time of the apostle slanderously saying that this is what the apostles preach. The apostles preach, let's do evil that good may come. Let's do evil and then good will come out of it. Are the apostles preaching the doing of evil? No. But these false teachers are saying that's what they're preaching. And how serious of a sin is this? How serious of an accusation is this? Of a slander is this? The apostles answer, their condemnation is just. 
When they are condemned, it will be a righteous condemnation for them to have the audacity to say that the true gospel is to do evil because God's going to bring good out of it anyways. It's not that. Romans 6 is another one. Romans 6 verse 1. Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? He has to attack this accusation again because the people are saying, well, you've been, you've been preaching the grace of God, Paul. So that means that we can continue in sin and then have more of God's grace. But he says, no, may it never be. I'm not preaching that. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? If we are dead to sin, because we said we believed that Jesus died for our sin, if we are dead to sin, then how can we still live in it? If the Holy Spirit dwells in us, we have the Holy Word of God in us, the Holy Child Jesus is dwelling in us, then why is it that we would say he wants us to sin so that God's grace will smother our sin? No, he wants us to reject sin. He wants us to repent of sin. And this we find also in Romans 6, 14 and 15. Romans 6, 14 and 15. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. False teachers commonly will say, we're not under law, we're under grace. We are under grace. That is a popular phrase that has been hijacked. It has been hijacked from the Bible, right here in Romans 6, 14 and 15. We're not under law, we're under grace. So do what you want to do. Live as you want to live. Jesus covered it all. He paid for all of our sins. He died for everybody. He loves everybody. So God's grace will take care of it. Just live as you please. We're not under law. There are no commandments to obey. We're under grace. Is that what the phrase means? We're not under law, under grace. Is that what it means? Look at 14. Sin shall not be master over you. In the past, it was master over us. Now, it's not to be master over us. Why? Because we're not under the curse of the law, but we are under the blessings of grace. That's why sin will not control us anymore. It's not our master. That's why we have the power of God by the spirit of grace to overcome sin so that we master our sin. Our sin does not master us. That's what he means in 614. And he answers it that way in 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? That's what they want to say. We're not under law, we're under grace, so we can sin. And it's okay. Cheap grace. He says, may it never be. What in the world are you talking about? That was not even in my mind. That was not even in the mind of the Holy Spirit who inspired me to write this. It's not in the mind of God to allow for sin. God does not delight in evil doers. He hates them. 
God hates evil doers. He hates especially those who profess to know him. Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. New Testament verse that says God considers these kinds of people detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. People say God doesn't hate anybody, but Titus 1.16 says he does. He hates the empty professors of religion. And the Bible, they say, does not teach that we're supposed to be obedient. If you say obey, then you're a Pharisee. But Titus 1.16 says they are disobedient. They also say, you should never call any man, any human being worthless. We're all valuable in the sight of God. But Titus 1.16 says, worthless. Worthless men. Worthless for any good deed. In that sense, they are worthless. So it's not something God delights in. He does not delight in evildoers. But what about this charge of God, the God of justice? Is God a God of justice? Is he a God of righteousness? Yes. That righteousness and justice is found in Christ. Romans 5.1, therefore, Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, we are justified, declared righteous, we who were wicked. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. But then where is the God of justice? Is God a God of justice? Yes. To those unrepentant sinners, this is Romans 2. Romans 2, 1 to 11. The God of justice has an appointed time. That's what the people do not understand or believe. Romans 2, 1 to 11. He has an appointed time. Therefore, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment, for in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. 
But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. God will judge us. And who particularly, who specifically, specifically will <coughs> judge us? Christ himself. 2 Corinthians 5.10. 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or evil. So where is the God of justice? He dwells in heaven. And this God of justice has a first coming and a second coming. In his first coming, he will preach repentance to prepare people for his second coming. That's what we have in Malachi 3, 1 to 6. Notice, Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I am going to send my messenger. Who is the speaker? At the end of the verse, it says, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is the speaker. And remember, Lord of hosts means God has armies, angelic and human armies, that he can call with just a word and send them to attack and to destroy. That's who is speaking. So now notice he says, Behold, I am going to send my messenger. Who is that messenger? And it is the Lord's messenger because it says my, and we have an uppercase M for my. And it says, And he will clear the way before me. The Lord is still the speaker. My messenger before me. Who is the Lord and who is his messenger? We have to answer that question. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The Lord whom the people seek will come to his temple. What does he mean by that? Then he says in verse 1, Even or and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Who is the messenger of the coming uh, of the covenant who is coming? Who is that? And in this interpretation, we have two. We have John the Baptist, who is my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. That's John the Baptist. The my and me, messenger of the covenant, and he is coming. Behold, he is coming. That is the Lord Jesus. 
That's the Lord Jesus. Let's now prove it. Let's prove it and show it. For one, before leaving Malachi, Malachi actually has a couple of prophecies of the coming of John the Baptist. Malachi 4.4, 4, Malachi 4.4-6, 4, 4 Malachi 4.4, 4, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. And he will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Who is this Elijah the prophet? Is it Elijah the prophet who lived in the time of evil King Ahab of Israel, 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings chapter 2? Is it that prophet or is it Elijah, metaphorically speaking, in that it's John the Baptist. Who is the Elijah the prophet in Malachi 4 verse 5? If it's the same Elijah in 1 Kings, and some people and false religions misinterpret that, they say that Elijah was reincarnated and reincarnated as John the Baptist. Or they might say that this Elijah, who did not die, came back to the earth and was born as John the Baptist, or whatever. Some, in some way, one way or another, they want to make him actually or literally John the Baptist. But the prophet doesn't mean it that way, because the Bible does not teach reincarnation. There is no reincarnation in the Bible. The Bible teaches one death, judgment, Hebrews 9.27, in, inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes the judgment. It teaches that, and then on the day of judgment, the resurrection of the dead. The righteous and the wicked will be raised from the dead, resurrection. The Bible teaches resurrection, not reincarnation. Reincarnation means that somebody dies, and let's say in this life, the, the man's name is Randall. And then when he dies, he comes back into the world. And he, if he is born a human, he might be born uh, uh, as a man. And then his name might be Henry. But if he's born a woman, then he might have the name Susie. Or if he's born as an animal, then his name will be Rover, the dog, whatever. You see, that's reincarnation. But that is false. That's from Satan. False religions teach that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches death and ultimately on the day of judgment, resurrection. Death, judgment, day of judgment, and resurrection. Okay, that's in the Bible. Keeping that in mind, let's see how the apostles and Christ interpret these passages. Um, first, we go to Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11, 7 to 19. Matthew 11, 7. And as these were going away, Jesus began to say to the multitudes concerning John, What did you go out into the wilderness to look at? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? 
a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's palaces. But why did you go out? To see a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and one who is more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it was written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah, who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces who call out to the other children and say, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. In verse 10, Matthew eleven ten, he quotes Malachi 3, verse 1, our verse. And then in verse 14, when he says, and if you care to accept it, he himself is Elijah who was to come. He's referring to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Malachi 4, 5. We also go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17, 9. 9 to 13. Matthew 17, 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he answered and said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. They knew he meant John the Baptist. Now let's go to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verses 1 to 4. Mark 1, 1 to 4. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. In Mark 1, verse 2, 
he introduces his quotation by saying, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And why does he mention Isaiah? Because in verse 3, he does quote Isaiah. Isaiah, in verse 3, is Isaiah 40, verse 3. Mark 1, 3 is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where Isaiah also prophesied of the coming of John the Baptist. Isaiah 40, verse 3, where we read these same words, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. But he also quotes from Malachi 3, verse 1. And often the quotations, well, in a couple, in two or three places, the quotations of the Old Testament, whenever two prophets are quoted, it will be the case that one prophet, the major prophet, is mentioned by name, and the minor prophet is not mentioned by name, such as right here in Mark 1, 2 to 3. The main one is mentioned, the minor one is not mentioned. And that's not because he's ditching Malachi or does not know that that's in Malachi 3.1. That's not the case. It's simply a convention that they would quote the main one, not the minor one. That's what's happening in Mark 1, 1 to 4. Further, let's go to Mark 9. Mark 9, verse 9. Mark 9, 9 to 13. Mark 9, 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, he gave them orders not to relate to anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man should rise from the dead. And they seized upon that statement, discussing with one another what rising from the dead might mean. And they began questioning him, saying, Why is it that the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does first come and restore everything. And yet how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I say to you, that Elijah has indeed come, and they did to him whatever they wished, just as it is written of him. Then what happened to John the Baptist, just as it is written of him? They killed him. And is that not what they wanted to do to Elijah? Didn't Elijah preach repentance fiercely, forcefully? He preached repentance against Ahab, Jezebel, and all the false prophets, and they wanted to take his life? 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings 2. That's what they wanted to do to him. So as he suffered and suffered the threat of death, John the Baptist suffered and actually did experience death. So as they persecuted Elijah, they also persecuted John, John the Baptist, as predicted. After all, why is it that John is compared to Elijah? Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. When the angel goes to Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, to announce that he and Elizabeth will have a son. 
He says this in Luke 1, 15 to 17. Luke 1, 15. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. And it is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. It says in 17 that he will go as a forerunner before him, before the Lord, in the spirit and power of Elijah. In the spirit and power of Elijah. Not as Elijah himself, literally, but in the spirit and power of Elijah. Just like Jesus was saying in Mark 9. Same here. And he quotes, in verse 17, he quotes from Malachi 4, 6. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children. That is the restoration that Malachi was preaching that John would preach to prepare people for the ministry of Christ. He was going to turn back many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. Is that not what John the Baptist preached? And he caused many to repent of their sins, preparing them for the coming of the Lord. Luke 1, Luke 1, 67. Luke 1, 67. Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, makes this prophecy in terms of John and knowing that John is preparing people to believe in Christ. Luke 1, 67. And his father, Zacharias, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy toward our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our father to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, this is Zacharias speaking of his son John, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways. Verse 76 is also Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 and also Isaiah 40, verse 3. To give to his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Luke 3, Luke 3, 
verse 1, we read 1 to 14. Luke 3, verse 1. Now, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, in the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every ravine shall be filled up, and every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough roads smooth and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. In Luke 3, 4 to 6, Luke 3, 4 to 6, this is Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. Isaiah 40, 3 to 5. Now verse 7. Remember, this is an answer to their objection. Where is the God of justice? Where is the God of justice? So now the God of justice is speaking through his prophet, John the Baptist. This is what justice is. 3.7 He therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father, For I say to you that God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none, and let him who has food do likewise." And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Well, what is this judgment and justice that John is preaching. He's telling the people that they are coming as a brood of vipers, a brood of vipers, a pack of snakes, poisonous snakes. John the Baptist is calling the people in the crowds poisonous snakes. You're a poisonous snake. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? How are you going to escape the judgment of God, the righteous judgment of God? He's preaching justice here and righteousness. And As in the days of Malachi, they boasted that they had Abraham as their father. And therefore, God delights in us. It's okay if we do evil because we have Abraham. He delights in us. He loves us. We can do evil. But John the Baptist is saying the opposite. No, because God doesn't need those people. God could use stones. He could make stones into people. 
Just like he made Adam from the dirt of the ground into a man, he could take stones and make them into people if he wanted. So he doesn't need you people, he's saying. And God's already ready to judge you. You better watch out. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. God is ready as a logger. He's out there in the wilderness with all the trees and he's ready to chop down the trees that are taking up the ground because they're not bearing any fruit. There's no apple on them. There are no pears. There's nothing. So he's ready to chop them down. That's judgment. That's the God of justice. If you don't have any fruit of the Spirit, then I'll cut you down. And then I'll throw you into the fire. Verse 9. God will throw people into the fire. Just as men, they gather a bunch of, of debris and, and bits and pieces of fallen trees, leaves here, twigs there, dried up without any fruit. And what do they do? What do men do? Either they will drag them all the way to their house, haul them all the way to their house and put them in their fireplace, or in the field where they have the fallen trees, they will make a fire and burn up all those worthless branches and leaves. Burn them all up. God will do that. That's the God of justice. There's a day of judgment coming. The people recognize it, at least some do. Three groups of people recognize it. Those who had two tunics or two shirts, he's saying, share with somebody who doesn't have one. And then the tax collectors who love to cheat the people and collect more taxes than they were supposed to do, he's telling them, stop doing that. Stop collecting more than you're supposed to collect. And then in 14, the soldiers. The soldiers have weapons. And with their weapons, they can walk up to a civilian and say, give me half of all your money in your pocket. Or give me all the money in your pocket. They can walk up because they have a sword and usually the civilian doesn't have a sword. He's not walking around the towns and cities with his sword. But the soldiers have their swords. They're in the military. They're soldiers. And so they could walk up to people and say, give me what you have and steal from them. And he tells them, stop doing that. Don't do that and don't accuse anybody falsely. Be content with your wages. The people, the civilians are paying taxes so you can be a soldier. So just be content with your wages. Be happy with what you get don't be greedy for more. That's repentance. So is God one who delights in evildoers? Does God think that evildoers are good and he's happy with them? No. And John the Baptist is going to be a clear example that that is not the case. He's preaching repentance. Turn away from sin. Then you will understand the difference between good and evil, righteousness and wickedness, justice and injustice, when you understand the gospel, as John the Baptist preached it. So this is the correct understanding as to why Malachi brings up John. Because John, as Jesus said, he would be the greatest of all the prophets because he would be preaching in such a way 
and be endowed with the ministry that precedes the ministry of Christ, right before the ministry of Christ, to have the honor of preparing people to receive the ministry of Christ. He is the greatest of all the prophets. But it's not only John the Baptist. It's also Jesus. Jesus also will continue the same ministry as John the Baptist. That's what the prophet describes in verses 1 to 6. In verses 1 to 6, he describes that the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, he will do like John the Baptist. He'll be like John. He won't be different than John. He's going to preach the same gospel message as John preached. You say you are seeking for the coming of the Lord, but when the coming of the Lord takes place, will you be ready for him? Will you be ready? And that will take up next time. We'll take up verses 1 to 6 next time, explaining the ministry of Christ, where he teaches that God does not delight in evildoers and that God is a God of justice. You better be ready for his justice. Jesus is the highest and supreme prophet, apostle, teacher, because he's the son of God and son of man, telling us how God actually is, God's true character. And next time we'll take up that task. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.